welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with this week's host, Helen Hillix. I'm Todd Benton, your co-host. Today's topic, what comes after the Women's March on Washington? Join Beth Green as she is interviewed about what we can all do to keep the passion alive after the Women's March on Washington. If you're fired up to make a difference but don't know how, listen as Beth Green, founder of the interrevolution.org, talks about how we can all make a real difference in the world, starting with ourselves. Author of the new powerhouse little book, The Handbook of the Inner Revolution, Handbook for the Inner Revolution, Beth will tell us how we can fight for oneness, accountability, and mutual support. She will address the rumors of infighting in the Women's March on Washington and what, and what makes this such a common occurrence in even the most well-meaning movements. She'll talk about what we need to do to overcome all this divisiveness in our movements, our political parties, and our homes. Sound like magical thinking? Well, it's not. Beth has down-to-earth, practical guidance for every listener. You will be inspired by her original thinking, her brilliance, and her humor, and you will take away the feeling that you really can do something after all besides be frightened or angry. Join us and call in with your questions at 866-472-5788. And now, here's Helen. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much, Beth, for being with us today. I know you're very busy, and I really appreciate you taking the time out today to be with us and take on this incredible topic of what we can all do moving forward, and to also talk from the perspective of the handbook for the inner revolution, which is very exciting. So I want to read a couple of news articles because I thought they were particularly relative to the whole topic of the women's movement, and not that we're only going to be talking about women, but these uh, articles were very interesting, I thought. The first one is sent in by Lizzie, and it's on the NBC News channel, and the title is Flight Attendants Trained to Spot Human Trafficking. And I know, it was it just last year, Beth, that you interviewed yeah. someone on the truckers for, yeah, you know, Candace Perry's name. Yeah. Yeah, I I love that show, and I thought this is so interesting, too, because this is just another long-distance way of traveling is on airplanes. So it starts out talking about uh, Shelia Fiedrich, who is a flight attendant for Alaska Airlines, and she said that she just instinctively thought something was wrong when she saw this girl with greasy blonde hair sitting in the window seat and a, a very well-dressed guy sitting right next to her, and she looked like she'd been through pure hell, oh said, F- said Fiedrich. And she guessed that the girl was only about 14 or 15 years old mm. and traveling with this notably well-dressed older man. And so she tried talking to the girl, but the man got very defensive, and so she left a note in the bathroom for the girl, and the girl answered and wrote back, I need help. Oh, my God. And so, yeah, so Fiedrich contacted the pilot who contacted the authorities on the ground, and uh, they arrested the guy as soon as they got off the airplane. So, it's really a a very scary thing. Um, They are trying to provide this training, but I, I don't think it's very universal so far. There is a woman named Rivard, I can't remember what her first name is, who is in charge of doing the trainings, and she gets like a hundred of the flight attendants at a time to come do the training. 
and she said that one of the one of the hardest parts of the training is to tell people not to try to rescue them mm. on the flight because you can endanger the victim and yourself. Yeah. So they, they just have to let it go once they've contacted the pilot. But uh, I, I just love that story because people are doing something. Again, they're, they're changing the way that we think about things, changing the way that we are activists ourselves, wherever we might be, that we can make a difference just by noticing things that are going on around us. I love that. That's so cool that she had the awareness, you know, to that takes that's an inner revolution right there. Just having the awareness of what's going on around you. I mean, I guess it's not (laughs) that radical that you see something that looks out of place, but it's great that she said something about it. But in a way, it is radical, Todd, because we see things all the time and ignore them. Uh, how many That's children true. have been subjected to child abuse in the home? And the neighbors, you think, may, they must have heard it through the walls if you're in an apartment. Or didn't they see the kids? And, and, they, and people are paralyzed and they don't know what to do and they don't want to know about it. So yeah. uh, I think it is very radical and that's very exciting. And their, their airline ambassador, Sandra Fiorini, uh, testified before Congress in 2010 about trafficking that she witnessed during her 42-year career with American Airlines. And she said that included girls that she suspected were trafficked after flying from Moscow to the United States under the guise of becoming actresses and models. Oh. Yeah, so it really makes you sick, doesn't it? It does. So here's a little bit more of an upbeat article. This was sent in by Chris R. from The Guardian, and it's No Alcohol, No Violence, Life Inside the Bolivian Community Led by Women. (laughs) Gender-based violence remains prevalent in Bolivia, but Maria Osiliadora, a women's community in Cochabamba, is trying to change this. Now, this is a community that was started since 1999, Uh, A bunch of women got together and decided that they were going to, after they had been trained about violence, you know, uh, household violence, domestic violence, that they were going to start a community and the rules were going to be no sales of alcohol and no gender-based attacks, sorry. So women women tell me, this is... um, Irusta Perez, one of Maria Osiliadora's founders, she said, women tell me, when we lived elsewhere, he used to hit me. But now that we live here, he's forgotten about drinking and never touched me again. Wow. And it's, uh, this, this community is in many ways an oasis for women in a patriarchal society that has witnessed far too many acts of femicide. They were talking about that... Uh, According to the Bolivian Attorney General's office, in the first two days of 2017, two women were killed by their partners, and each year, like 95 women are killed. And even though President Evo Morales' administration passed a law in 2013 to stop intimate partner violence and penalize the abusers with with femicide punishable by 30 years in prison, that only one-fifth of cases has have resulted in prison time. Mm. So it's a it's slow moving, it's a slow moving train, but for almost two decades the people of Maria Osiliadora have taken the issue into their own hands. And they have um, they work on a committee uh, of 
in intrafamily violence and reproductive health that's where they got their training as a way to help families escape the pressures of living in precarious rented accommodation with abusive landlords. That's how they came to be. And there now are about 420 families who live there. And they're helped by a community-managed support committee if couples experience relationship problems. I, I love that. I thought this was mm. very, very interrevolutionary. And there have been open workshops educating women about different types of domestic violence because they believe that if he's not hitting you, he's not abusing you. So they've talked about psychological and financial abuse. Mm-hmm. And and since its inception, four men have been removed from the community because they continue to beat their families. Mm. And, you know, it goes on to talk about some quotes from some of the women that say how much the workshops have helped them find their voice and that they used to just be shy and their husband bossed them around and now they stand up for themselves. It also talks about that this this community was one of the finalists Mm. in the 2008 World Habitat Awards. And that it was uh, nominated explicitly, recognized for the project's success in reducing domestic violence and promoting female leadership in a traditional patriarchal culture. And this is my favorite part. Um, and this, I'll close with this. The resident Gumercindo Paraga Camacho has, has seen attitudes evolve since he first moved to Maria Osiliadora 15 years ago. He says that at first, men in the community resented the leaders because they were women. But he said they've grown to accept it. And this is a quote. Some men say that men are more capable than women, but it's the other way around, he says. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I I just thought that was so great. I mean, and they, they've talked about some of the struggles, too, that over the last five years, they've had some rifts over property ownership. And sometimes it's made it harder to pursue projects and unite the people. But um, Irusto Perez, who's one of the founders, said, as long as I'm still here, we'll keep on going, won't we? And I can just hear you saying that, Beth. (laughs) I can totally hear you saying that. And that's why we're inviting you here, because as long as you are alive, you're going to keep on fighting. And I'd like you to talk a little bit, you know, we've all, all seen the amazing partisanship that has been in the forefront of the news the last few weeks. And the the anger and the fear are just overwhelming that people are feeling. And so many people don't know what to do. And the Women's March on Washington, while it was a huge success, and, and proliferated around the world uh, was also filled with rumors of, you know, that, that women from the new wave feminists who uh, are pro-choice, pro-life, I mean, um, were uninvited to be sponsors and some of the other rifts that naturally happen in movements. And I know that you're very familiar with those. So I'd like to, to hear your take on it and we'll just take it from there about what you see happening and where you think we can go from here. Could you make your question a little more specific so that I can watch? Okay, well, the to... first thing I'd like you to talk about is the the infighting in movements and the partisanship and the divisiveness that we see in our world today. Well, there are several routes, of course. Uh, I'm going to be saying a lot of the obvious, but I think it needs to be said to start with. Uh, there's a lot of routes to the divisiveness. One is uh, sometimes we genuinely believe that we're right. <laughs> and sometimes we are right. 
Or to put it another way, sometimes we genuinely believe that the other side is wrong. Uh, You know, I remember very clearly, uh, especially in the anti-war movement uh, in the 60s, but, um, but many, many, many other movements that I participated in, that there was such a sense of absolute certainty that the war in Vietnam was wrong, bad, evil, and being perpetuated for uh, all kinds of corrupt reasons. And anybody who actually studied any of the history of Vietnam would have discovered that actually the the National Liberation Front, which was the, uh, the real name of what we call the Viet Cong in order to put the people down, was an, uh, a nationalist movement against the French and against French colonialism. And if the American people had been told that we were actually taking over from the colonial uh, masters of the French, just like if we had gone into India and had uh, you know, tried to hunt down Mahatma Gandhi, I think the American public would have been really upset. But see, it was never presented that way. It was always presented as, oh, this is against the communists. Uh, you know, it's the South, the free South Vietnamese dictatorship, which we all knew was a dictatorship uh, that was a propped up by the Americans, had taken over the battle uh, to fight against the National Liberation Front. Now, I'm going into detail on this for some reason, which I think we'll all d- find out in a minute. But you see, it's the perspective, it's the way something is presented can make such an incredible difference. And once we had the fear of communism, you know, as they said, of, you know, <laughs> Joseph McCarthy, you know, it's like, not Eugene, not Eugene McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy, Senator, you know, and, uh, you know, he was always that there's communists everywhere, right? And so in that context, you see, they could get away with this kind of stuff. And people were ignorant and actually didn't know that the Vietnam War was a continuation of uh, French colonialism. And, in fact, we would have said, why the heck are we there? You know, and the because, after all, the French were defeated by the Vietnamese at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And I think that was in 1954, Right. And so the way that things are put forward has such an impact on the way people experience it and see it and respond to it. So in that situation, a lot of people, even in the movement, were not even themselves aware of the history of Vietnam and the history of the French participation in colonialism and what the Americans did after World War II. When we started taking over the role of the superpower of the world after the French and British were defeated, and the the Germans and the Belgians and so on, you know, the end of colonialism... Well, right. what are we going to do? Are we going to say, oh, no, we're all for colonialism. I mean, we, after all, we're a colony of, you know, of England. It's like, oh, you know, we're going to go out there and say, well, we believe it's okay, not okay to colonize us, but it's really okay to colonize them. See, we wouldn't have done it. And you see, I believe that a lot of what goes on in the movement is based on, in, in, or when I say in the movement, let's say in our society, and let's start there, is based on not understanding the history, the intention, what is really happening, 
we are kept very ignorant, and then we are given these soundbite news. And, you know, in the old days, we say, oh, the news was better. It wasn't so partisan. It was, well, baloney. You know, the news didn't come out and say and expose the American government as, you know, continuing the French colonial war. So, um, you know, we get very little. And so the heart of the people is not being touched in a way that would bring people together to really fight for something that is right. And in fact, there's much more of that today because we have social media that is not controlled by the powers that be and there's more opportunity. And plus there are cell phones everywhere. So we saw in the, uh, you know, in the Black Lives Matters movement and the whole uh, the whole movement against police violence, against minorities, and of course there has been police violence against all kinds of minorities over the year, whether it's, you know, the Chinese, when we were had the Chinese coming into California, the, or the police violence against homosexuals, that was very much a part of our society, that the police, uh, and I'm not saying the police are bad people. I'm saying that there is a history of bullying of minority groups. And so when we discover this and we see it on cell phone and we watch a black teenage girl being thrown around a classroom, uh, people get angry and sick about it because the message has come home that we are really understanding the suffering that is being perpetuated and I believe that the answer to all of these uh, divisions is to bring people the truth and bring it in a way that they can understand I don't even know if I'm answering your question because I've just gone off on this tangent well you you are answering the question about what is causing all of this separation Um, I'm I'm wondering, though, if you believe that people are getting the straight story now, because I don't see that. I don't know. No, no, exactly, Helen. I believe and I think we've seen it that, for instance, many people voted for Trump or did not vote for Hillary because they actually believed that there would be no difference. Or I was just talking to a woman yesterday, very nice woman who kind of liked Bernie, but when Bernie wasn't nominated, uh, I don't know that she voted at all. And she said, well, there wasn't any difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I said, well, in some ways, I can really understand your perspective. But on the other hand, if Hillary Clinton were president today, we would not have had the travel ban on Muslims. We would not have a a, a new uh, uh, executive orders that are allowing Uh, pollution to be dumped into coal country again that is a completely pro-business anti-environmental agenda and so on and so on and the you know Hispanics would not be afraid of being rounded up and deported I mean you know it there it does make a difference you know when the choices that we make and I know some other uh, Trump supporter uh who is now sick about it, but will never say, I'm sorry, I ever voted for Trump. But, you know, he thought, oh, yeah, you know, this is a guy who's going to stand up to business as usual. Yeah, but Trump is is undoing Dodd-Frank, you know, and he is a friend of Wall Street. And he's putting billionaires uh, into the cabinet. So, 
there was a complete misunderstanding and a uh, and a real uh, twisting of information by a candidate who knew how to communicate to people, tell them what they wanted to hear. And in the divide and conquer, it's like, tell this one this and tell that one that. And you're, you're telling the, the white working class that he was going to bring jobs. He didn't tell the white working class that he was going to lower the taxes on business and that that was and they and end medicaid uh right. you know i mean you know you know and and threaten all kinds of things that people they didn't get that they got the one piece that he would speak to them that's what a demagogue does you know speak to them and get them feeling like he was on their side and just like in the vietnam war you know we were appealed to on the basis of racism i have to say and because the yellow peril was very much a part of our consciousness after you know the chinese communists took over china and uh, also about the you know anti-communism patriotism you know, find something that's going to ignite people. And so that is what happened. And are we being effective? I think we are reaching the, the people who agree with us more right. than we're reaching anyone else. And this right. is the problem that we are facing. And the reason that the you know, that the issue about abortion, which you brought up, that had to do with the Women's March, which I am actually getting back to, (laughs) (laughs) believe it or not, Um, that the issue of the Women's March is that we have allowed ourselves to be divided and to demonize one another. So if you're pro-choice, you think that people who are pro-life are, you know, are the scum of the earth. They're all killing people, you know, abortion doctors, and they're rigid and unfeeling and that there's no fundamental and they don't love people and they don't care about women, you know. And so that's the way so many people have seen that. And then the people who are so-called pro-life, that appears to me that those people have been convinced that because life begins in the moment of conception in their minds that everybody who cares about giving women some choice about their their reproduction is a murderer. And so how are the murderers going to sit down with, um, you know, thoughtless, brainless, uh, you know, demog- um, you know, religious fanatics and come right. up with anything, right? You right. can't. Because we have already been separated from one another. And there isn't enough truth. There is not enough truth. I honestly believe that people on both sides, if they really saw more than, okay, the dead fetus in the living room, but also what about the dead women and the botched abortions that we saw in our day, Helen, because abortion was illegal? You know, why don't we show them those pictures and say, if you are pro-life, is this what you want? Wow. Yes. I, I, when you said something a minute ago that, you know, we need, we, we get uh, inspired. We need something to inspire us. And we so often are inspired by misinformation. Yes. And I would really like to hear 
you know, we have a caller, by the way. We have Lizzie on hold. Um, so I'd like to take her call, but I'd like to also get back to the question of, you know, what can we do about this misinformation and finding yes. a way to inspire us that isn't based on hate and fear? Yes, that reaches across to the hearts because my whole point is I believe that most people, and I will not say all, have good hearts. I mean, your stories today, both of them about the the community in Bolivia and that woman on the plane, these are people. They're just people. Yes. Who, you know, who have been touched, who feel, who care, and who are looking for solutions. And our nation and our world is full of people like that. So, yes. Uh, so let's take the caller, and then uh, we can definitely come back to that question. Okay, thank you. Lizzie, welcome to the show. What's your question Hi. for Beth? Hello. Um, I kind of popped in on the middle here, so um, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what question to ask or anything. Um, I did hear the, the uh, reference to the stories you just brought up. Um, that really brings hope to me as far as, okay, there's got to be more of those people out there. Can we latch on to them or can we, can we can come together and uh, have people like that, you know, just grow? People that, you know, seem ordinary, but, you know, if we all did our part, what could we so do? It sounds like you're, you're segueing right into the question that Beth was beginning to answer, so I'll, I'll let oh. her just continue, <laughs> um, which is how do we inspire people with the right information and that brings us together rather than divides us? Mm. Well, you know, this is such a, uh, a challenging uh, issue. And I don't, I don't sit here and say, I have all the answers that I know how this is going to take place. I don't even know if it's going to take place, much less how it's going to take place. But I know what we can do, at least some of us can do, is have the intention to find people and talk to them. I mean, I, the, the first thing is we have to be willing to talk to people whose politics or policies or perspectives we don't agree with and actually believe that within that person is a human being. I mean, that is so radical. As simple as it sounds, that is the radical change that we need to make in ourselves. That, you know, I, I am not always going to, for instance, I didn't say to either of these two, well, now, aren't you sorry you voted for Trump? Yeah. I didn't say that because I really don't need them to say that. I, could, I can tell that the man is terribly sorry he voted for Trump. I don't know, though. I mean, in fact, I wasn't so happy about voting for Hillary. So, you know, I can understand and I could say, I understand. I understand why you did that. I understand why you feel that way. I understand why you uh, don't like abortion. I don't like it either. I, right. I'm certain that most every woman, not to speak of also the men who were struggling around these issues, who had an abortion, wanted to have an abortion. I, I mean, I remember getting pregnant and just wishing, first of all, being conflicted about whether or not I could have a child, which I could not have under the circumstances of my life. I couldn't have not have had a child. In fact, I couldn't have even carried a child because of my health. But um, 
But then there's that inner conflict that whether or not I want a child, oh my God, and what am I going to, how my life is going to look. And then, oh my God, I wish this problem would just go away. Right. I completely agree with you that no woman, and I've had more than one abortion, yes. you know, wants to do it or or thinks that it's a great thing to do. I mean, everybody just tears their hair out about that decision. And I think that's something that's not acknowledged by the pro-life people that they think it's just a frivolous, casual kind yes. of answer to birth control, which I think is just couldn't be further from the truth. I don't know, Lizzie, if you have anything more specific to ask Beth and if you want well, to just hang up. That- or- I just want to say, you know, I concur with what you just said, Helen, because I, too, um, have had abortions, and it's not an easy decision. And, you know, to look at the big picture of things, um, not just my life, but the baby and the whole family, and it was really, really hard. And it's still, you know, I mean, with best help, it's, you know, should help me get through that. But I really hope people would take a step back and look at it, because I think a lot of times, you know, on TV, it's like we get this persona of, or, you know, this, this uh, picture of, oh, you know, the woman's just using it as birth control. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but overall, it's, it's not an easy thing. Right. No, it's a wrenching experience. Yes, yes. It's a wrenching experience. And, you know, uh, you were saying that uh, perhaps some of the pro-lifers are not aware of what women go through, although how many of them have secretly had abortions as well? But they mm-hmm. couldn't tell their families or their husbands or whatever because they would have been stigmatized. I mean, they also are having wrenching experiences right. when they see lives being brought into the world that are not being taken care of, that are never going to be taken care of. I mean, people say, oh, well, why don't you just adopt? Like, having been a counselor, I know, Helen, you're a counselor too. We know from the inside how difficult it is for children who have been adopted. It's not simple. It's not, and how difficult families, it's been for families when they adopt children. Uh, you and, know, when you, and when you give them up. And yes, uh, how wrenching that is, and that that being that is in the womb knows all along that this debate is going on about whether it's going to get aborted or it's going to be given away, and it's really picking up all the stress and anxiety from everybody and then fathers who are torn apart themselves because they may or may not be ready to raise a child or they feel like they have no say because the woman makes the choice and everybody says oh this is a woman's issue but it isn't a woman's issue it's the issue it is a woman's issue and it's the child's issue and it's the father's issue and it's the family's issue and if the women if maybe more of the women who were taking the pro-choice stand would talk more honestly about how wrenching it is for them and like start being human to human. In fact, I know that the innerrevolution.org is sponsoring something. And why don't we, you talk about that before we go on to the general idea of what we need to do. I I had that on the list of things to mention today on April 8th and the location is to be determined but in the San Diego area but it's available live via video conference from any place in the world. It will be happening from 10 to 1 Pacific time on April 8th and it's about revolutionizing the abortion conversation and we're trying to bring together 
people from both sides of the issue to have a really deep, honest uh, discussion, which Beth will be leading. And I'm so looking forward to that. And, you know, I I couldn't agree with you more about the women on the pro-life side, how many of them have had abortions, how many of them wish they had had abortions, and how many of them regret not having abortions, you know, when they stay in marriages that are abusive or restrictive in some way or, or miserable in some other way because they didn't allow themselves the option, you know, of having an abortion. So it's it's just a, a horrifying and painful div- division on both sides. And I'm very much looking forward to your guidance and your I don't know, I always think of it as a miraculous way of (laughs) managing to bring people together, you know, who see just what you've said already, you know, how many women on both sides are are not talking about the pain that they've experienced, you know, along with the women on the pro-choice side, how many of them have regretted having an abortion? Yeah. So, you know, not having had the support. From exactly. The to have that child. Exactly. You know, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about it that part of the, the the horror that women face who have had abortions is the lack of support in the collective. And it's not only the lack of support once they've had the abortion, but the lack of support that might make it possible for them to have the baby if they wanted it. Yes. You know, both ways, but, you know, you always talk about how it's not, you know, none of our feelings are individual feelings. We are, we live in a collective of energy and beliefs and opinions and, and pain and, and so forth. And when someone chooses to have an abortion, you know, they have to live with the whole collective's judgments yeah, and fears about it and so on. And this. It's just a big mess that I I hope we can yeah. make make a, an actual dent in that issue on April eighth and at least we're starting start, today. Yeah, and exactly, which I, it's a total surprise that they were starting here. But it is really a great follow on from the women's march because if we stop, it, you know, it's not about abortion. It's about divisiveness. It's about lack of compassion for one another. If a black woman does not have compassion for a white woman whose husband has been, you know, out of work and who no longer can find a manufacturing job, that is no better than a a white woman who has no compassion for a black woman who is living uh, in poverty or has to work two jobs. I mean, what the heck? Absolutely. We're all suffering. I mean, when are we going to wake up? And, you know, divide and conquer is the word, right? Absolutely. If we allow the women's movement to be divided over the issue of abortion, rather than coming together and saying, I understand your perspective, I understand your perspective, let's try to work together. Even if we don't find a solution, at least this is, you know, this is the American way. We understand that people have different perspectives. But to understand one's, each other's perspectives and to liberate us all to tell the truth because we feel so obliged to stand behind a, uh, a, a, a political perspective that we have signed on to that, oh, my God, I mean, how could you admit that you don't feel the same way as the, the, the woman who's next to you, you know, with the sign? 
Yeah, you know what I mean? It's so fascinating how we get our sense of belonging and our illusion of safety from aligning to a small group rather than to the oneness where the real safety lies. That is so true. And aligning out of being against somebody or against something. And that is so much of what I saw in the movement. So you asked me a question in the beginning about, you know, the division in the movement. And part of the reason, so I started on, I said that people didn't have the facts, didn't know the truth. Um, And, you know, facts are a little bit slippery in and of themselves. I'm not saying it's easy always to know the facts, but there are some facts that we can know. And so there was that. But then there's the fact of, you know, the ego, which we've talked about on Interrevolutionary Radio many, many times about the sense of I, me, mine, and uh, that, you know, our sense of being an individual as though we were just an individual, not also part of the collective, and how much we have been trained and socialized to get our safety from uniting against someone else. So, okay, so let's say you have a, a team, a sports team in a school, and among the kids, there's all kinds of, you know, bullying or um, competition. This one is bigger than that one. That one is better than this one. This one is faster than that one. That one is gay. That one is straight, whatever, black, white, Hispanic. And, but when it comes to the team fighting the other team, <laughs> Oh, my God, we're all one. We're jumping on each other and do it for the Gipper and do it for the team and do it for the school or do it for our town. Like the guys that who are being pummeled on the other side aren't also people. I know it's absolutely insane. You know, I'd like to take a pause here and put in a plug for your new book, Handbook for the Inner Revolution. And tell people that you can go to our website and just sign up for the newsletter and you can get a free download or you can order it from Amazon. And the reason I think it's so important to put that that plug in right here is because that little book will tell you how you can move forward and stop this very you know uh, issue from continuing, from perpetuating And so I just wanted to throw that in for anybody listening to please be sure to look up the book and download it or buy it from Amazon. Yes, and just the the website is theinnerrevolution.org. That's the place to go for the handbook for the inner revolution. Yes, ma'am. Yes, and you know, if we actually could take that, I just want to say one more thing about the home team versus the non-home team. Yes. Not only are we willing to kill the other side, but we're willing to kill ourselves to kill the other side. You know, Absolutely. You, you know, when you, whether it's competition in business, I've been talking in sports, it's so obvious, right? Where uh, these kids are encouraged to go out whether they have concussions or they're in pain or they've broken a leg or whatever it is. It's like, hey, get over it. You know, adrenalate yourself. Take a shot of something and go out there and fight the other guys because we are so socialized to fight against and fight against and fight against. But if you extend that, do you think it's any different in war? Do you think that the person that you're killing on the other side is not a human being? We, it's like we forget that. 
and in the, you know the handbook of the inner revolution and our our perspective begins with the idea that we're all human and that there is something that unites every human being except maybe those who are too mentally um, disturbed that they are too far gone for whatever reason but I wouldn't even assume that they feel any different you know I'm just I, I'm just saying hey I can't say that every human being but that we all have a tendency to want love and admiration and validation and uh, safety. I mean, uh, you, you know, a, 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 a dog, a dog who has been chained up in a parking lot, you know, if that dog is going to be barking at everything and probably be pretty mad, but give that dog a chance to have been brought up in a loving family you know, with its friendly puppies and all of that. And that pup, that, that dog is probably going to be sitting in your lap. You know, you, you bring up such a good point, the segue from football to war um, to the, to the dog, whatever, whatever we're talking about. Absolutely. It, it, the same principles apply. I'm reading a book right now that, uh, that, the Volunteers of America from New Orleans sent me after our interview with them about veterans and homelessness, and they sent me this book about moral injury at, that's written by a couple of women who's, for whom war had a big impact in their families, and I was thinking about that with the football, how much it relates to war, and they were talking about some of the the men are, when they go to boot camp, you know, they're, they're actually instructed, kill, kill, kill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, literally, you know, it's literal then, but it's, you know, it's practically literal on the football field as well, but that these men come home completely wrecked. And it's not from PTSD, it's from moral injury because mm-hmm. they are doing things that they know go against their universal human values. Yes. And I think this goes so much along with what you're saying that most people are good hearted. Yes. Almost almost everyone knows right from wrong. And if th- I think that's the essence of what we're hoping to accomplish in the abortion conversation is, you know, let's let's talk about the moral injury on both sides that, you know, when we do things that we believe are wrong, whether it's have a baby for the wrong reasons or have an abortion for the for the wrong reasons or the right reasons, whatever whatever is the moral injury. Those are the things that divide us, not not the humanity of it. Yes. But yes. it's it's that we're not listening to, as you say in the handbook, we're not living by the oneness, accountability, and mutual support. Everybody believes in that. That's right. But if we don't live by it, we're going to suffer moral injury and it's it's going to manifest in all the problems that we see today. You know, I'd like to pick up on what you just said about uh, everybody knows it. Um, Those male uh, patriarchs in very patriarchal societies who are abusive to women, and I am not saying that men in our society are not abusive to women, but I'm talking about, for example, what you might consider to be or what we might consider to be an extreme, you know, where families are selling their daughters or men think it's okay to rape women, or ISIS, and so on. And, you know, they believe in oneness in their own way. In uh, I mean, they believe in the oneness of God. 
you know, if you're a Muslim, you believe in Allah. And, and yet, right. they, the, yet the same man can pretend that he doesn't know that oneness should also apply to women. And that, that women and men are fundamentally the same. We all right. bleed when somebody sticks us with a knife. We all, our hearts hurt when, uh, you know, when we have no love. If you have ever looked at little children, yeah, the boys may be socialized to be one way and the women, the girls are socialized to be another way, or maybe it's testosterone or whatever. But any child who falls is going to cry. You know, a child whose daddy is going off to war or there's a divorce or he's just beaten the mom and, uh, you know, he's thrown out of the house, that child is going to feel the pain. That that every child feels the pain of having a mother who's an addict who can't pay any attention. I mean, the boys and girls, in that essence of their humanity, my God, they're the same. And and when did they stop being the same? At what magical moment do boys stop feeling and girls stop counting? It it's it's. It's unreal to me. So, you know, when you say that, you know, oneness, that people were not, that we all in our hearts believe in it, we do. But we think too often we're so socialized and believing that that only means us. So going back to the to the team, you know, I've been told, oh, yeah, these competitive sports are really great because they build team spirit. No, they don't. (laughs) They, they build, Only for your team. That's right. That is not oneness. That is team spirit for persons of your race, your color, your religion, your group, your school. Uh, even in schools, they can have it. You, your language. No, that is not oneness. And But it shows you that we're all longing for that experience. We're longing for the safety of the feeling of belonging somewhere. And yet we have yet to, to transform our own consciousness to realize that all human beings are one family. So speaking of all human beings being one family... How can we relate this to going forward after the Women's March? And I know that there are going to be science, scientists march and a million other th- things, pro-choice marches and all the marches. I, I just want to tie it back to that topic of going forward and have you speak about that. Well, I believe deeply that we need an inner revolution And that if we do not have an inner revolution, that the movement will fragment, as it always does. We have seen the unholy alliance par excellence in the Republican Party, which is made up of all kinds of different factions with different interests who have all glommed on, I'll call it the Trump train, in order to finally have their day to get uh, get rid of Obamacare or to get the school voucher program or to uh, inv- gut the environmental regulations or discriminate against Muslims or whatever it is. And this is their chance to uh, to take advantage of the fact that the Republicans are now in charge of two branches of the government, plus who knows what's going to happen with the Supreme Court. 
So um, this is their opportunity to jump in. But this is an unholy alliance. And this group of people are already fragmenting. And I, I would say that had the Democrats been elected, there would have been something not so dissimilar happening on the other side. I mean, Democrats have been in power too. But the Democrats were not always united around principles or even processes that everybody agreed with. And so we use each other for a specific agenda, but that is not uniting with each other around a vision, a shared vision. And I believe that what we need to do is to get honest about our egos, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, and the way that our economy and society and families and our own little heads uh, operate. And, you know, we, we have both in the handbook for the inner revolution and its precursor, which is living with reality, which is also a free download. We really talk about how the ego comes into being and how it sets things in motion for us to remain in this I, me, my, and it could be then the we, but the we becomes my team, my, our family, our team, our nation, our religion, and that we're taking on everybody else in a competitive, negative way, separating. And what we need to do is crack that. It's to wake up to the fact that I is my worst enemy, that we actually believe that the I, the me, the, the we is our greatest protector and our greatest friend. But actually, the way that we are doing we is still around a clique of people. And, you know, the woman who had that child that she didn't want and resented the child all her life feels guilty when that child is then, uh, uh, you know, shooting heroin. But she knew that she didn't want that child. Or that her husband did not want that child. That, you know, aligning ourselves thoughtlessly to a collective to which we can readily belong has given us the illusion of safety. Just like if you are an owner of business or you're a a manager, a high-level manager, and you really believe that you should be bonding with the managers instead of the workers, Right. And that that is going to be what's best for your company without realizing the economic impact of companies competing with each other and um, keeping down wages, which means that people can't buy their products or that they skimp on the products, which make them unsafe and they end up in court after they've killed dozens of people. You know, I I totally agree with what you're saying. We have five minutes left. Todd needs to read the e-card for next week. But I would like to uh, end this with some, because a lot of us in the innerrevolution.org and a lots of thousands and thousands of other people are going to a new march this weekend um, in support of Planned Parenthood. And I would like you, Beth, to talk about how we can go to a march for instance, for Planned Parenthood, which is obviously pro-choice, with, without the agenda to separate? Well, we go in there and we say, thank you, Planned Parenthood, for everything that you have done. 
and let us embrace our sisters who are uncomfortable with abortion and find a way for us to work together to really do what is for the highest good of all. And that means you have to look in the face that person who you're saying, I'm taking away Planned Parenthood, which is not only about abortion, we know it's also about other kinds of uh, you know, health issues. And I would say, read the handbook for the inner revolution. It's very simple. It's very down to earth. It tells you, what do I do in this situation? What do I do in that situation? How do I carry the inner revolution within me, within my family, within my company, within my political organization? How are we going to crack the ego's hold on humanity in everything we do? And I obviously can't talk to that uh, issue now because you know because we're running out of time. But that's what the handbook for the inner revolution does. It how gives you an overall analysis, but it also gives you this is how we can do it, and we can do it, starting out by total honesty, total transparency, willingness to see myself in you, and to see you in me is the beginning of the conversation that can truly rock our world. Thank you, Beth. That is so fantastic. Todd, give us the e-card and we'll come back and thank Beth. Sure. Why are men really afraid of each other and what can we do about it? So that's what we'll be talking about next week, a conversation with interrevolutionary men. Have you noticed how few men have really close male friendships? And if they do, they're usually drinking or sports buddies. Why is that? What keeps men from connecting with one another in a real way? Join us as men from the men's group, Interrevolutionary Men, explore this topic together. We'll share the outcome of our recent retreat, Crush or Build, a workshop for men who want to use our power. What happened in our lives that caused us to feel men weren't safe to connect to? And what happens in our socialization that reinforces that message? Finally, what can we do to undo all that programming and connect to one another in ways that are authentic, caring, loving, and emotionally honest? We're excited to share what we've learned, as well as our own challenges in connecting to each other instead of going back to our, quote, safe ways of relating. Join us with your questions and comments, too. Thank you, Todd. That sounds like a great show. I can't wait to co-host it with you next week. And, Beth, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Your words are always inspiring and motivating to do the hard work exactly exactly as you're suggesting, that we find people to talk to and talk to them honestly and openly and try to find our common humanity. So thank you so much and uh, keep up the good work. And I know you're never going to give up and that helps me not ever give up. You know, I, I want to tell you something because I can see we have a few seconds left that I it really helped me being on the on your show today, Helen, because oh, sometimes I feel so tired because, you know, I'm chronically ill yes. and, old and fading fast. And it's, you know, and I thought, I have nothing to say today. Well, of course, I couldn't stop talking. So, <laughs> I I appreciate it. You know, the passion is still there. The love is still there. And I'm so grateful that you guys are continuing in a revolutionary radio and may you thrive in the way that, uh, that you are fed by us, the rest of the audience in the world, and that the audience is fed by you. Well, thank you so much. And we couldn't do it without you. So uh, ever onward and uh, we're, we've got your back. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. God bless everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.